Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This is Make It Kind. Make It Kind. M.I.P. With Masamela Mafumo. Mark Thompson. Make It Kind. Get woke. Ladies and gentlemen, she's known as the election whisperer. She's an editor with The Cycle. Um, she's been an advisor to Project Lincoln. She's also known as the doc, and she has set herself apart in terms of her election analysis and predictions over the past few years. We're happy to have her back here on Make It Plain. Rachel Bittacoffer is with us. Rachel, how are you? I'm, I am good. I, you know, it, it is a huge, huge relief knowing that stage <laughs> one of removing Donald Trump from the presidency is accomplished. Uh, you know, getting stage two of that process, of course, you know, to Biden's hand on Bible uh, powers of the presidency sucked out of Donald Trump and put into Biden is now the goal. And that is uh, usually, you know, an unceremonious, um, you know, guaranteed process and certainly is more likely to succeed than fail here. But it's not a total given either. It's, it feels like it's going to be a slog, all, a slog, a slog all the way to that moment. And uh, one, I will, I'm not embarrassed to confess the um, tension that began in my stomach around 8 p.m. election night, uh, November 16, uh, 2016, um, when I realized that Donald Trump was going to be the president and all that that would entail in terms of, of the in, um, immense danger for the country uh, domestically and internationally, uh, just knowing what I do about government as a professor of political science, it was such an intense tension. It has resided there ever since, every moment of every day. And um, to know that that power is no longer his will be an immense relief. Um, but. Yeah course we're going to be coming into a reality in which you know he will be leaving having poisoned 
the well of public opinion against Biden. You know, the whole of the Republican Party has joined him in that process so that to run for office in 2022 as a Republican will mean that you'll have to tell voters that Biden is an illegitimate president that stole the election. You know, it's our problems are not going to go away, but having the powers of the presidency not vested in that man is a massive imminent danger reduction. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, one small step for the presidency, I guess, one giant step for our democracy, just getting him out. Yes. But clearly there's a lot more to be done. Well, election night 2020, how we've not talked since then, or we haven't talked in a while, but but definitely not since then. What were you feeling on election night 2020? Were how right were you this go round? Yeah, you know, I, on election night 2020, I was feeling a mixed bag of things, right? Because we weren't watching a normal election process play out, right? What right. we were watching was a plan that Trump and his Republican allies at the RNC, um, Bill Barr, the Attorney General, and others had constructed to help him um, formulate the potential to steal the election in the event that he came up short but not too short, right? And so for months I had been, um, you know, trying to get people to, to pay attention to chess pieces that they had been moving in preparation of, um, you know, moving, uh, number one, sequestering Democratic voters into the vote-by-mail system. Uh, of course, Democrats were sequestering themselves into that system quite effectively, too, for a long time. It took them a long time to stop telling Democrats to vote by mail. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I and others had to, had to aggressively say, stop telling people to do that. Like they're like literally laying a trap there. Like you can't do that. And, um, you know, they, I mean, this is amazing. The coordination and, and skill by which the GOP laid this plan with the, you know, entering of DeJoy into the USPS and, um, you know, uh, gumming up the works there and Trump turning Republican voters away from vote by mail, which you could see in survey research data. So it was quite brilliant, uh, this long executed plan. And then their goal, of course, um, was to create what they called that red mirage, where on election night, it was going to look like Donald Trump won the election and that he was, you know, president elect, right? And the whole plan hinged on narrow margins in the Midwest, especially where they had uh, forbidden the state legislature from uh, the Democrats, the governors there, from changing the laws to allow for preemptive um, counting of absentee ballots. Uh, usually um, it's about 5% of the electorate there in those states, Pennsylvania is 5%, who relied on mail voting or, or absentee voting. So the laws were set up to accommodate that, am that amount of traffic. And once it became obvious that like 40% of the electorate might rely on remote voting, the um, Democrats said, let's change the law that said you cannot count those ballots until all election day voting is done. So basically midnight of election night. Um, and, uh, you know, the Democrats wanted to say, let's let's do what Florida does, which actually has a very right. um, sophisticated vote by mail, institutionalized vote by mail system. Um, and, um, you know, the Republicans to do this plan prohibited that to happen because they knew that if they didn't do that, that the vote count that night would heavily favor Trump. 
And then their goal was to rely on ballots that came in postmarked before election day, but didn't arrive on time and challenge those retroactively. So they were hoping that Biden's win would rely on type on those types of ballots. And the only reason, you know, for all the people who are out there now, like, oh, poo-pooing, like the fear that Trump would steal the election, literally the only reason this plan failed, this long executed plan that had multiple stages to it, is because the margins were not narrow, that they could not rely on these late arriving ballots, ballots because Biden's win was, um, you know, dependent on ballots that had already been sitting at these election offices. So it's a pretty thin and frankly lucky you know, outcome that allowed democracy to survive in America. It's certainly not something where I would say the guardrails, you know, were uh, prominent. These judicial rulings, yes, have been very, very um, solid on behalf of Democrats, but that's because they were forced to go and argue to exclude ballots that had been sitting there, you know, for two weeks before election day, right? If the arguments had come down to these late arriving ballots, I think the courts might have been much more receptive to the arguments, frankly, and, and we would be talking about a much, you know, much more likely scenario of, of them potentially being able to win, especially at the higher levels. I think the most likely outcome would have been wins at the district and appeals court level and then getting to the Supreme Court where we might have found a new jurisprudence emerge. Right. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. Right, yeah. Right. Yeah. So, and, yeah. Yeah. And, and that would have been, scary but you're right Every, everything has been um it has been pretty solid um you too um have been somewhat critical of the democrats in this process in terms of their electioneering yes and, and outreach right Talk well, yeah, very i mean the reason we saw my forecast manifest pretty much exactly right for the presidential cycle which is you know getting back to your other question, um, I, yeah, I got off topic a bit. Um, getting back to your other question, we see a bifurcated outcome, right? We see the forecast almost perform exactly as predicted 16 months before the election, before Joe Biden became the nominee, before coronavirus came and destroyed the American economy and killed 245,000 by election day, I think it was, Americans and growing, you know, at a tune now, I think of close to 2,000 Americans a day. Before all of those things happen, you know, I put out a forecast that said, look, this is, this is what's going to happen on election day. We're going to see the Democrats win. It's going to be a return of this blue wall. It's not even really going to be close on the blue wall because it was, you know, people misunderstand what happened there in 2016 in the first place. It's not so much a, a, a working class white revolution of populist Trump angst as much as a story of disappeared turnout for Democrats and wasted third party balloting where we're talking about five, six, seven percent of vote share, two party vote share going instead to third party candidates. I mean, we think about how astounding that is. I mean, that's a lot of vote when we're talking about five percent of a vote share not going to Clinton or Trump. Right. And the way that the traditional analysts talked about 2016 was all about Trump winning over the Midwest. Well, that is not what the data says. He doesn't crack 50% in any of those swing states, except for two states, Iowa and um, Ohio. And that's because they are 
you know, in their this big political realignment that we have of college educated voters moving one way and non-college educated voters moving the other, those two states are um, caught up in a realignment more robustly than the other areas of the northern tier of the Midwest are. So I knew, so my data and my theory knew very um, solidly that we'd be seeing um, a return. Give me a second. Gabriel, this is not a show that you can do that on, okay? Or usually you can, but not on this. Mm-hmm. Um, um, uh, knew very robustly that we'd be seeing an agitated Democratic coalition, which of course includes Democrats, but also independents that vote with Democrats because they lean Democrat. Um, and we would also be seeing a swing back of pure independence that went Obama, Trump, and now Biden, because they are generally going to break against the status quo. They usually find the status quo sucks because they don't know much about election or politics. They don't follow things very closely, but they are usually unhappy with the status quo. Definitely in this scenario, from the time I I released the original forecast, the status quo was pretty uh, stable, right? It was a good economy and things were just rolling along. Uh, as we moved to the cycle and COVID rolled in and destroyed the economy, the status quo became very bad. So it was, uh, you know, under my estimation, even worse for Donald Trump under that pure independent breakdown. And so my original forecast said those three Midwestern bellwethers are all going back to, to the Democrats. And then in that realignment process, you have Arizona, which is moving towards the left. And, you know, in that realignment of the Sun Belt, it's the leading indicator because its political activism began in 2010, where, um, you know, millennial Latinos especially got activated by the show me your papers, um, you know, overreach of uh, the Jan Brewer administration, uh, Sheriff Joe Arpaio. Those are the things that activate people politically is when they're targeted. <laughs> Right to um, lose rights or to lose something that they care about, if it's gun folks or whatever, right? So, um, you know, those, um, you know, that evolutional track in Texas to me was um, probably too early statewide, but I was looking specifically at state legislative and congressional races. And so when I said we have a bifurcated outcome, and I've been yelling at Democratic electioneering stuff on Twitter. That's what I'm really talking about is why with the best fundamentals you could possibly hope for and a a massively unpopular incumbent who is mismanaging two large crises, um, the pandemic and the economic collapse, you have a political party that goes in every analyst, not just myself, uh, arguing that they should be not only protecting their gains from 2018, but adding to them, right? Instead, we come into an election night where, yay, we're dislodging Donald Trump exactly and literally to, like, as I wrote, you know, we're going to see these suburban surges. We're going to see the story of 2020 is going to be about the suburban surge, not the rural stuff that we saw in 2016. Um, You know, we see exactly everything we're supposed to see there. But why not in Congress? And the story is that the DNC and its three campaign arms that it controls, the DCCC, the DSCC, and the DLCC, are not good at electioneering, right? They are running, I mean, they rely on a consultant class too. So like to you know, keep in mind, these are, it's not like the people sitting in the administrative positions of the DLCC 
know how to run campaigns. They rely on professionals that they consult with who tell them this is what you should do to win this race, right? Or to win this election cycle. That is where they are getting steered wrong, right? They are the the that information that's coming into them is not taking into account political polarization, hyperpartisanship, the reality of the American electorate, which is it, which is a low information electorate. It doesn't know all of the things that Donald Trump is doing. It it needs those things told to them. Frankly, it needs to be told that Donald Trump's children are milking their positions in government that they shouldn't have to begin with to uh, personally enrich themselves because they don't know that, um, you know, of the debate audience, you know, the, the assumption that the Biden team made that they don't need to, to come back with that um, as Hunter Biden is assaulted is, is such a flawed assumption because I guarantee you at least half of that debate audience had, had no idea. They have no idea about Jared and Ivanka Trump's like um you know excesses in in government they they don't follow the news they don't really they don't know who Mitch McConnell is right and the Democrats are um, constantly on on offense right so they they had a messaging strategy it was the exact same messaging strategy they designed in 2018 which is issues focused and it's issues focused cerebral marine right not not emotive heart and gut like you know here's here's what will happen to you to your family if republicans win the election and um it's usually very very policy wonky argumentation which is fine if you're talking to us right but that's not who elections are for they're for them the other people these people who don't read the news who don't find that stuff interesting if they found that stuff interesting then that would be a different story, right? But they don't, so they need to be spoken to on their on their terms, on their level, and the Republican Party inherently gets this. So for the last 20 years, they have been fine-tuning an electioneering apparatus that is just second to none, right? So on one side, you have um, you know, this electioneering strategy that takes these congressional races does what what's called nationalizes them so makes them a story for voters that is you know hey this is about control of the senate this little race here with this guy john smith that you have never heard of and don't give a hoot about this race actually if you vote in it will save your second amendment rights if you don't vote in it they're gonna they're gonna make um guns illegal Right. Not not even rational. Right. Doesn't like the the Democrats get caught up in. Well, that's not true. OK, that's not really something that can happen. That doesn't matter. Right? <laughs> like On the Republican side, they understand that if you tell voters that and make it high stakes, they're more apt to show up. And they understand that at the end of the day, these Georgia Senate runoffs are going to be decided based on when you look at the electorate. The percent of Republicans that turn out and cast ballots compared to the percent of Democrats. Okay. And unless Democrats equalize or come close to it, the percent of ballots cast in those races, both of those races are going to lose. Okay. End of story, full stop, period. That is not how the DSCC 
thought about North Carolina. Okay. That's not how they think about these races. They don't, they do not conceptualize them that way, which is a really tremendously bad mistake because, you know, if you're not focused on like the Stacey Abrams reality of, okay, we've got more people out there that think and feel the way that we do, but we don't talk to them. We don't register them to vote. We don't go out there and activate them. We instead run our campaigns purely on, um, you know, uh, the, there's a voter file and the voter file identifies independence either by party registration because that's a state where you register by party or by like a modeled independent, right? And the campaign resources are devoted towards let's win the argument amongst independents, okay? Number one, like, you know, it's not that you don't go into that space and spend resources there, though the more sophisticated you can be about identifying who truly is a pure independent versus one of these leaners, the better those resources can be deployed. Number two, the argument that we're presenting in persuasion is ineffective, right? We're not doing, like we could do a persuasion, but the type of things that we argue now, that we're not winning there, right? We need a whole new persuasion argument approach, right? Mm -hmm. But beyond that, like Stacey Abrams is arguing, I'm arguing, you also need to be doing simultaneously a very robust effort on registration until the registration date cuts off mm -hmm. and, you know, stimulation of turnout of young people, of people of color, of women who are single, college educated people, people who fall for sure, even if they're not Democrats, they could be lean Democrat independents because nine out of 10 times when someone leans one way or the other, they vote for that party, right? So they're fakers is, is what I said on the uh, Daily Show when I was in there a little bit more, with a little bit more flourish, but they're basically fakers. They pretend to be independent, even to themselves maybe, but ultimately when they cast ballots, nine out of 10 times, it's that party that they lean towards, right? So um, what we need is messaging. So like my Georgia campaign, if I can get down there, is going to, there's two different things that I'm bringing. The first one I think is going to be very effective at this particular part of the problem. And what it does is it tells the voter, you are one voter, right? And your decision to show up to vote can vote two senators into office. And mm -hmm. those two senators will give Joe Biden control of the Senate and with it the ability to actually govern. Because if he doesn't, if they don't control the Senate, there's no governing. Okay, there's nothing that's going to be happening. Mitch yeah. McConnell is going to, you know, kill every single thing that, that Biden wants to do. But like with those two senators, you could bring health insurance back to 28 million people if the court strikes down uh, yeah. the ACA. You could save, there's 11 million dreamers in this country. You know, uh, the Trump administration is so cruel. They deported this one young man to Iraq, even though they knew that he wouldn't be able to get insulin there for his diabetes He's from Detroit, Michigan, and he died, right? I mean, that that one vote, one decision to show up and vote in January, on January 5th, for these two Democratic senators 
could save millions of lives. That's how you talk. That's how you have to talk to people who are not us, who don't see or immediately understand the value of politics, of their role in the political system and their participation. You have to you have to have a conversation with them that makes them understand why it is valuable for them to show up. It's not some wonky policy combo about healthcare. It's about the the greater you know role that that participation does. And and it, here's the worst part about it: the reason that the DSCCC or DSCC or the DNC for years has refused to do this is they think that if they run ads like this, that it will make more Republicans vote. Okay. Well, I put this theory to a test last cycle and in, in well, yeah, in 2018. It's like, oh, okay, we'll be now I'm doing this voter file analysis. It's the hard data. I'm going to find out. Is there a difference? These blue dog Democrats who were so careful not to inflame Republicans, not to talk about Donald Trump, not to talk about policies in a bold way that might get Republicans upset. Did they actually hold Republican turnout down? Because in 2018, because Trump's style is all negative partisanship, unlike with the two Obama midterms, Republican turnout went up. It didn't go down. Okay. And that's why they saved those um, races in Georgia and Texas and Florida. They, they went up. Okay. And I learned a lot. I learned that you can artificially stimulate negative partisanship, especially if you don't have it in competent electioneering, um, you know, out, um, uh, system. Right. And um, so I went and I looked at these blue dog uh, candidates versus people who just ran regular Democratic or liberal Democratic candidate. These are all frontliners, though, the 40 top districts. OK, not going beyond that, these 40 most competitive districts. And there was no benefit, literally none. The turnout for GOP uh, voters surged in every single district, even though the Democrats had the giant wave at their back and proportionally because their turnout was so bad in 2014, it was much bigger, their surge in 2018 than the surges for Republicans, even though then, even then though, the um, Republicans still outvoted Democrats proportionally. Their percent of registered voters was still higher turned out than Democrats because they get good electioneering materials. They get, you know, stakes framing, they get nationalized messaging. They get a ton of resources put in on GOTV, on field, all the things. All I'm trying to do is get Democrats to modernize their system and, and adapt, adopt some of these techniques that are already being deployed against them. It's not like I'm trying to teach a horse to drink water for the first time, right? right we right, know right. these things will work, right? And, and of course, there are adapt, adaptations that I'll be showing along the way that you put in two, two things that you're going to adapt for you know, liberals think and feel differently than conservatives, right? So you aren't going to hit them exactly the same way with exactly the same thing. And, and number two, some of the techniques that the Republicans used drove their base nuts, right? It, it's psychological warfare. So you don't want to go full GOP, right? You don't want to be irresponsible and, um, you know, drive your base nuts and, and do things that are psychologically 
manipulative to the point where you're causing psychological harm. Because my book, you know, The Fear Factory, where I go through the media and campaign systems of the right, that it does argue that point that the Republican, you know, fear capitalist did harm, psychological harm to their electorate. And we are seeing the effects of that. We are. We're definitely seeing the effects of that. And and I agree with you in terms of the consultant class. And it's not leading the horse to drink from what it hasn't already drank from. I think what Stacy has been trying to do, what she has done, I mean, we have her to thank in right. spite of the consultant class and the yes. DCC. What she has been able to do, obviously, Rachel, is go back to the well water that Jesse Jackson first brought the Democratic Party to. Yes. Registering voters, messaging. But you're right. The consultant class is, shh, it's not, you know, and, and I'm like, what? <laughs> Who are you? You know, let don't say anything. Just be real quiet and just kind of don't don't push back. I don't think it was scripted. But I wonder if you agree with me when Kamala was at her debate. See, I think this is an example of what you're talking about in terms of emoting. When she went on that riff about health care, if you have pre-existing conditions, they're coming for you. Yeah. If you have insulin, they're coming. That was one of the strongest punches yes from the ticket yes you couldn't help and of course i'm partisan but i i put took my put myself outside of my partisanship there's no way in the average person could have heard that and not been affected by it no doubt you know no. I, did, did, you, did you did you see that it just yeah. Captured, yeah. It was over then yeah i'm so proud and and you know like like so what i'm trying to do with this new initiative that i can't specify yet but i will be able to specify soon is bring that every day to the left because right now it has it, it has been needed for 20 years and for 20 years more really but 20 years the right has articulated a strategic um plan that they have been executing against the left that has destroyed the democratic brand has you know put us on perpetual defense and it has you know the, the DNC and the Democratic orgs have not responded. They just simply haven't. And the 2020 election, that the, the wasted, it was the reapportionment and redistricting cycle. Like, I, it just has to be. It just has to be the last time. It just has to be the last time. And they can't be given any more time to correct on their own. So, it, you know, so the doc's coming um, to, to, to teach and show by example, because that's the way that the best way to do things. So, so how, tell us how you, you implement that. Cause I mean, yeah. when I have this conversation, how, who is your audience to get them to listen and do something about this? Well, I am, I am banking on the fact, Mark, I'm, ba- I'm banking on the fact that there is hunger for this. Okay? okay. And I know there is, I mean, every single person has uttered the phrase, why can't the DNC do blank? Right. Like, why, why didn't they do blank or whatever? Right. Every I mean, every person I speak with anyway has that and they ha- you can fill in the blank with whatever it might be. Why didn't they come after the GOP for blocking the covid relief or why didn't they, you know, um, you know, co- uh, come after the GOP when they, um, you know, uh, um, you know, um, didn't didn't give Merrick Garland a hearing. Like, I mean, there's so many things, right? They never do any of these things. They just 
it's like um they're so they're so afraid of going on offense that they have turned us in, there's no brand there's no democratic brand for voters right there's no uh positive brand anyway they've let the brand be set by the opposition the republican party by the way is a party that has been has endured first a rebellion in the form of the tea party that purged and eliminated its entire moderate class basically yeah. over the course of a few election cycles then had a civil war in the form of the republican nomination in 2016 which the mainstream of the party lost okay and donald trump then in the fluke accident of you know democratic complacency and you know sh I mean, again shitty electioneering uh because clinton with better, I mean, again, people, Clinton didn't run the, the campaign, okay? You, when you're a candidate, you look at your campaign consultants and they tell you what to do. And it doesn't matter if Rachel Bittacoffer is there saying, no, don't do that. You need to run field. If you don't run field and the GOP is running field, you're going to lose, okay? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I guess, that that the GOP had registered more voters in North Carolina. Right. Like yes. That's that's anathema. When has that ever happened? Yeah, right. And that should never happen. And it happened because they had voting they had voter registration events and we didn't because there was a pandemic. And the party forbade it. Like DNC forbade their candidates from using resources for field. The, and I had no idea until Labor Day weekend, right? And as soon as I found out, I was like, if you're a Democratic candidate and you see this, you must do feel like you must do it. Like you know? it, it, it is is if we do what you're saying, is there enough time to do it? And is there is there a chance of winning both those right. people? So there's a fierce urgency of now. So like um, you know, I am fiercely urgently trying to to get everything organized but once it is it you know it's going to be um very clear that we need to get in position quickly because the right is looking at 2022 already and you know biden uh, whether it's strategic or not i don't know but he is setting mcconnell up to have be in a very difficult position to do the obstruction plan that i still think is the most likely thing that Biden, that McConnell will do, right? Because yeah. cabinet picks are irrefutably qualified. And if you'll notice, they're not newsmakers, okay? They're not people that have news headline, um, you know, they're not celebrity, political celebrities for the most part. They're, they're workhorses, not show horses, right? right? That's not an accident, okay? So he's he is setting McConnell up so that if McConnell wants to show up you know, assuming that they win these Georgia seats. And I, again, if I can get in there, I'm bringing, you know, I'm going to bring these two campaigns. The other one is to nationalize, to tie the two races together, which the DSCC says, oh, don't tie them together. Don't tell, God forbid, don't nationalize the race because then more Republicans will vote. Republican turnout is going to be big in Georgia Senate, period. Okay. There's nothing that Democrats can do that is going to change that. What they can do, though, is fail to make sure Democratic turnout is also big. And so it has to be that you're telling 
Democrats, these lower propensity Democrats who are least likely to show up, college students, you know, uh, especially because it's not an accident that the Georgia runoff date is set of the day that's most likely to have college students displaced, right? You, you, have, to, um, you have to get them to understand the fate of the world hangs on you voting. Not yeah. there's some arcane healthcare policy or you know this little like you know thing. Everything. The fate of the world. <laughs> like you have Everything's to on the table. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so what about Roger Stone? I mean, he's telling people, Republicans, not to vote. To yeah, we're very lucky for that. We're very lucky for that. And and you know what? You know, God bless Roger Stone. I hope he has as much success as possible with his effort to convince Republicans that there's a conspiracy going on with Kelly Loeffler and that they should vote Donald Trump on their on their write-ins. Because the more votes that go that way, it would be like what happened to us in 2016 because, uh, you know, third-party balloting, again, is why Donald Trump was elected. And, and you know, it is not the fault necessarily of third-party balloters. It's the fault of the campaigns who did not notice they had a... I mean, the, I noticed at the convention... Red alarm, fire alarm, man. I mean, you have this almost have like a riot on the floor of the convention and the and the Clinton strategists don't think, hey, you know, we've got a real problem on the progressive base. Like we probably need to do some serious work to offset this disaffection, right? Because yes, it's only a, a few voters it's in the grand scheme of things. But in, in, you know, two to three percent in a race that's going to be decided by a point, <laughs> it's huge. Right, you know? right, right. Folks, you can hear uh, by her very erudition why she's so celebrated. Mm. I invite you to follow her at Rachel Bittacoffer on Twitter. Rachel, um, let's stay in close touch because I think what you're trying to do is important and we need this perspective. I think this is this is good advice. And I think, you know, again, what you're saying, people want to make it about ideology right. versus moderate. But what you're talking about is strategy. Yes. And if you do the strategy, yes. I'll be honest with you, what AOC and everybody talking about, that ain't the most radical thing to me. I no, mean, no, no. Right. The issue is strategy and whether we're just going to continue to just do the uh, Let's just be quiet. Let's not say anything. Right. Let's be nice. And and we've dealt with that. People thought Obama was too nice. Yes. Too nice. And then we throw them lifelines like Biden saying, well, I've always been able to work across the aisle. You can't work with these people anymore. This ain't the same people um, that you worked with 20 years ago. These people are crazy. They are completely obstructionist. And when someone says he's not even going to allow your cabinet appointments, he's going to remove those. Yeah, no, so I think strategically, no right, Biden has put McConnell in a great spot because if McConnell, if you have somebody like me out there ready to do the messaging, right, because because if he blocks this group of people and you have the messaging offensive, the offensive messaging to go to go out, you go and you frame the whole party as extremist, right? McConnell is an extremist. Biden did everything right. He came to this job open-armed, open heart. You know, he nominated the right people for the right time. And what does the Republican Party do to him when he shows up? They kick him in the balls, right? I mean, you, you and you have, but you have to make that messaging. Voters, the Democrats don't understand 
you shape public opinion, right? You shape it. It doesn't go the other way around. Republicans are shaping and molding public opinion all the time. We need to be doing the same thing. And it takes an offensive strategic approach. And I want to say one more thing, because I know the audience here is very progressive. The Republicans are going to try for 2022. Their best, best hope is to pit the moderates and the progressive um, you know, uh, factions against each other. And so my work is very concerned with, you know, when we're winning, we're not fighting. Right. <laughs> and so, um, you know, they're going to try to do false flag operations where they pretend to be progressives online, bitching about the moderates or vice versa. Just give me some time to show you guys how this new strategic, aggressive, democratic, you know, offense can look because it's not about ideology. And we are um, really well positioned if we can come after them. My goal is that Mitch McConnell, a year from now, every time his phone chirps, he's going to get a pit in his stomach. Mm. Yeah. Right. Rachel Bittercoffer, B-I-T-E-C-O-F-E-R. Check her out on Twitter. Follow all she does. And we'll be hearing more and more from her and the incredible work she's doing and the inspiration she's giving us. Rachel, thank you once again for joining us on Make It Plain, okay? Thanks for having me. Thanks for getting woke and listening to Make It Plain. Please remember to listen, like, subscribe. And wherever you get your podcasts, please give the show a five-star rating. And please do spread the word. Let's all continue to pray for each other during this pandemic and this police-demic. If all hearts and minds are clear, it has been Made Plain. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.